Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 6th, 2011, and my guest is Todd Buckholz. His latest book is Rush, Why You Need and Love the Rat Race. Todd, welcome to Econ Talk. Good to be with you, Russ. Todd, your book is um, a slap in the face uh, to most self-help uh, books, and it's a fascinating read, very contrarian. Uh, could only have been written by an economist. And you start by attacking the idea that many people – hold as a utopian ideal, which is we need to get back to the Garden of Eden or something like it. Uh, what's wrong with Eden? Well, Eden was a great place I, I, for, from what I've read you know, thousands of years ago. Uh, it, it, of course, it was lush, and Adam and Eve didn't have to work, and the fruit was there for the pickings, if you're willing to, to take a chance. But we can't go back there anymore. You know, humans have evolved since then. Our expectations have evolved. Our, our brains, our, our, psychology, our psychological makeup has evolved. And while Eden and Paradise still has this captivating uh, aspect to it that attracts people from throughout the world, throughout cultures, they may not call it Eden, but the same idea of some paradise, it's just not something we're going to find uh, in our lives. And the idea of changing public policy in order to create Eden, in order to stomp out competition, strikes me as a pretty reckless way to, to, to run one's life or to run an economy. But it's a very commonly held view, particularly uh, among many economists, that competition is destructive, inequality is harmful, and um, the ideal – we may not get there. Like you say, we may not literally be able to go back there, but – but that's what we ought to be striving for, and you don't even agree with that. You know, there were simpler days not all that long ago. We could go back, just turn back the clock, not thousands of years, just go back 100 years, 120 years ago. Life was simpler. There was no internet, no telemarketer was calling you to interrupt your dinner conversation with your family. You didn't have to worry about traffic on the freeway. But life expectancy was about 48 years of age. You know, people didn't complain about traffic jams, but they complained that their children were dying of cholera. Yeah. So we could scroll back the clock, I, I suppose, and think about uh, a simpler day. But uh, the fact is, you know, uh, given life expectancy differences, if we went back to simpler days, half of the population wouldn't be here. They'd be dead. Uh, and, you know, we'd have all sorts of other problems. So, you know, the idea that simple is better, I think, is a, is a fantasy, and it's a fantasy that's uh, sold to us by yoga experts, uh, Zen masters, as well as economists and psychologists. Well, couldn't we say, uh, you know, I'm sympathetic to your view, but let me, let me present the other side. Uh, let's go back to 1900 without the cholera. So, for example, I mean, I know people who, who don't have televisions. Uh, I don't know too many people who don't have computers, but uh, there are such people around the world. And the claim would be that these complexities of our life, whether it's uh, a fancy car 
whether it's this big plasma, big screen TV, these are illusions. They don't really create happiness. They are things that we are conditioned to to purchase and desire. And when we lived in 1900 America, say, uh, if we could get rid of the cholera and the and the smallpox and the flu, which we have the technological capability of embracing that that stuff, we could say that's good. And let's just um, let's lead a simpler, slower life. But look, at, at any time, at any time in history, we could have decided to flip the switch and say, you know what, life is good enough at this point. Uh, you know, we've got enough progress. And I'm sure there are people, Luddites and others, at various points in history would have said that. But thank God Theodore Roosevelt in 1905 didn't decide to put the economy in a lockbox and say, you know what, enough progress. You know, we now have some electricity and, and we've got, uh, we figured out, uh, you know, that germs cause diseases and so on. And we could have decided that's enough progress. But frankly, as I look back on history, I can't find any particular point where I would have been happy for people to say and agree enough progress. You know, would, how about, oh, I don't know, you know, uh, right before the Civil Rights Act in 1964, would that have been a good time? How about 1860, would that have been a good time? So when looking back, we can't really identify any moment where we would agree things were much better and let's freeze frame. And I don't think other than sort of the, you know, the intellectual... Um, the intellectual exercise of saying, can we create 1905 but without cholera? I mean, you know, that, that's an intellectual game, a what-if game we can play, but it's all bound up together, and that actually is one of the themes uh, of Rush. You, you can't have the curing of uh, cholera, uh, and you can't have um, medicines to uh, to alleviate heart disease without also having the competition and the pharmaceutical companies and and the you know the laboratory uh, the laboratory rats and the laboratory scientists competing to get in there to get their patents that's all bound up together and you can't simply wish for the good stuff without also getting rid of the process the competitive process that ultimately leads to these things that we appreciate and some of which we don't appreciate. Yeah, obviously there 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 are some downsides to to progress or things that we wish we didn't have to deal with, but I guess the other thing to think about is that if you want, you can live in 1875 America if you choose to, and you could enjoy the benefits of many of the technological advances that we made, you could be selective about it. The Amish obviously have made a, a set of choices uh, about which technologies they'll embrace and at what pace. Um, most people don't want that, though, and I think that's one of the themes of your book. Uh, that that simpler life doesn't seem to make us. Most of us doesn't make most of us very happy. No, and I, and I think you make a very good point about the Amish and others, uh, and the Shakers, you know, had, had embraced their own simple life, which also included a, a lack of procreation, which I think, as I point out in the book, left them just with a lot of uncomfortable furniture and, you know, no progeny uh, afterwards. Uh, you could have, you could, you could attempt those things, and God knows during the 60s and 70s there were plenty of experiments, plenty of, you know, socialistic communitarian experiments. And I'm not talking about the Soviet Union, I'm talking about small scale, you know, Woodstock-like areas. Uh, and, you know, most of them ultimately broke up. I mean, you could look at the, uh, the kibbutzim in Israel, uh, which 
in some ways, uh, well, we, we, which which were successful in some ways, and many are still around, but they've all, most of all of them, have morphed into something much more commercially minded, because you they realize that after you add a, uh, after you've got more than a couple hundred people, it's awfully difficult uh, to maintain. Uh, a standard of living uh, simply on the basis of everyone being charitable and communitarian to each other. It just doesn't work that way. And that's you know, something Aristotle pointed out uh, thousands of years ago, that in, in his idea that the city, the polis, should only be as large as to encompass those numbers of people that could hear the sound uh, of, of the trumpet or the, or the ram's horn or whatever you know, sound they were making. Basically, if you were beyond that distance, you couldn't be in the community. And so in his mind, you really couldn't have uh, a, a working community once you got past a certain number of people. And the same is true of com- these sort of uh, communal, communitarian efforts. Yeah, how, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Tel Aviv? I think would be yeah, the right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I and I, it's an interesting. The kibbutz is an interesting example because I think, as you point out, they were fairly successful initially. They struggled to keep the next generation and the generation after that eager to play the same, play by the same rules. And very much of the, you know, I, I said it as a joke, but I think as modern metropolitan life in Israel became what it is today with a much, much higher standard of living instead of maybe a slightly higher standard of living. The ability to get young people to play by the rules of the kibbutz, the egalitarian rules, was much harder to do. Well, and and also the rules were rather authoritarian. Right? I mean, it, the rules of living in the community and the concept of uh, the children would be raised in communal homes and so on. And obviously, this is, this was different from a, um, you know, a communist authoritarian regime where it's forced on people. Right. These were parents and folks that voluntarily wanted to do it. In my book, that's fine if they volunteered for it. But to try to keep those sorts of rules in place, um, you know, became exceedingly difficult, as, as you point out. Well, you know, once the, the temptations or the pleasures or the conveniences outside of the kibbutz was made apparent, you know, it, is, it was tougher to literally keep them down on the farm picking Jaffa oranges. Yeah. Well, Instead spent- of Jaffa oranges, they're now designing software for the uh, CDMA devices in our phones. Yeah, I, I once spent uh, two or three weeks on a kibbutz in, in the Negev in the southern part of Israel, <clears throat> where it's extremely hot. We worked from 4 a.m. to about 11, put in a seven-hour uh, day of sorts. And we did two things. We picked peaches, and we also – one of the tasks I did was to clean a an irrigation tube that would get clogged from the dust, uh, the dryness of the, of the air. Uh, the dust would block the little irrigation holes on the tube that would run for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards – so every 18 inches, there'd be a little hole, and I'd take a pin and clean it out of its dust or dirt. And those two tasks were two of the most boring things I've ever done. Um, it, there was it was not, you know, we were making the desert bloom. Uh, that was the uh, that was the inspirational part. But um, you know, taking a pin and cleaning a hole every 18 or 30 inches, whatever it was, was not really that exciting. And course, not a whole lot of creativity. Now, now, let me ask you, if you wanted to do it every 33 or every 12, were you, were you given the latitude there? Well, the, the creativity actually, which I also didn't particularly like, was, was when to leave a tree behind. Uh, hmm. When you pick the peaches, you didn't pick every peach. 
because, of course, some were too high and, and or weren't quite ripe, and it would be better to let someone come along later. And as an amateur, uh, I found it challenging to know when to move on. I don't think the the people who lived in the kibbutz year-round were very appreciative of the, the volunteers, which is what we were. Uh, we, we were pretty inept, I think. So we probably could have got – there was some – there was some room for improvement and mastery, uh, but it was small, and and I found it, as did many of my friends, a little bit a little bit challenging because it wasn't it wasn't the most exciting work in the world. But I so that raises actually I want to raise a, an interesting question. You talk a lot in the book about the power of creativity and innovation, and I'm very sympathetic to that. But not everybody has creative jobs. Um, what about those folks? Well, first of all. Not everybody wants a creative job either. You know, I, I, ha- I have met plenty of people in, in, in my work life who really do want to come in at nine, be given a list of things, uh, tasks they must accomplish, and they want to be able to go home, you know, when the clock strikes five. And they're not really interested uh, in creativity. Um, and you know that's fine. I guess the the question is you know, more important from your point of view. What about those who do seek to demonstrate their creativity uh, and do not have an outlet in their workplace? And and certainly that's true. Look, the, yeah, as as I say in the book, yeah, there are certainly plenty of people who have miserable jobs, miserable bosses. You know, uh, they may also have miserable home lives as well. But when when you look at the data, and if you take the U.S. in particular and ask, are you satisfied or very satisfied in your job, the numbers are pretty high. I mean, basically about two-thirds or more than two-thirds of the population, working population, are satisfied or very satisfied uh, with their jobs. Um, you know, is it for me to judge whether you should be satisfied? You know, if, if I were, oh, I don't know, I mean, the UPS man is trotting up to my door as we speak. Um, you know, he looks happy. UPS pays decent wages. Would I be happy? I don't know. My back might ache after a couple, after a couple days on the job. But I guess the question is, in what kind of society, with what kind of political and economic system are people given a greater choice among occupations? And if you look back through history, basically, we've been on this march towards more freedom, obviously using Milton Friedman's word, freedom to choose what sort of jobs. Back in the old days, the simpler times, if your father was a blacksmith, you would be a blacksmith, and your forefather was a blacksmith. Uh, you know, and the same is true of, of various vocations. I mean, we, we all know that you know, the, the, the reason why families might have the surname Smith is because their entire family going back a thousand years in Europe were Smiths and blacksmiths. So, you know, we now no longer have those constraints, uh, and I think that gives us greater opportunity for creativity, even if it turns out that there are discontented people, legitimately, who can't quite figure out how to do it. You know, they want to look. I live in, in Southern California. And they say every cab driver here has a screenplay in his trunk. <laughs> you know, he doesn't want to, be, want to be driving a cab. He wants Steven Spielberg yeah. to call him up for a meeting. Yeah. Probably not going to happen. Um, but is there another society, another form of economic uh, matter that can make that more likely? I don't really think so. Yeah, I guess the, you know, the question would be what constraints, if any, do we want to put on that – on those choices and um – yeah, my impulse is to say none, but uh, obviously. Well, and, and we could look. We could, and I'm sure you have with with other guests because 
you know, I'm, I'm flattered to be on, on the program because you've, you've interviewed so many brilliant people, but I'm sure you've gotten into the discussion of excessive licensing and the fact that if somebody wants to set up a business of what, selling tickets to a professional wrestling event, I think I point out in the book they need a license in New York to sell tickets to a pro wrestler. I mean, yeah. think about it. This is this is something that's entirely fake. It's not real wrestling. It's pro wrestling, and they have to get an authentic government license to do it. That's so, to keep quality you know, high. That's to make sure that the quality of uh, the, pers- yeah. the person's you know professionally trained to sell those fake tickets. Yeah, they wanted to make sure that Andre the Giant really was a giant because <laughs> uh, they don't want to have a, some midget coming in That's there right. in wrestling. They want to make sure that he was measured in a full seven feet something tall. Um, yeah, so obviously we we still have you know quite a number of restraints, and they tend to be put there by government. And as you know, your listeners know, they're put there because entrenched interests like to tamp down competition. Yeah. Let's talk about the people who who love their work, which would include me and I suspect include you or at least like your work a lot of the time. And I view that as a great blessing. I, you know, I look at at the history of humanity and, and of course, as you point out in the book, there, there was a lot of romance about primitive man that was, I think, false. Um, Margaret Mead and others who romanticized uh, primitive life as idyllic I think were uh, wrong um, – primitive man struggles to find enough to eat <clears throat> and um, doesn't spend a lot of time sitting around the campfire singing folk songs uh, on an improvised uh, guitar, which they wouldn't have either. But I, I, So I'm very grateful that, that I live in a time where I enjoy going to work and um, it's a wonderful thing. There is a tendency – I want to come to your subtitle though. I, I, I think the fascinating question for me is is that rat race – uh, early in the book, you say stress is good for you, retiring makes you stupid, and the hardest working people are not the downtrodden, but those who cannot afford more vacations. So uh, let's talk about the people who work through the weekend, compulsively check their email, um, never really want to come down, enjoy the fact that they're always connected to the office. You know, we know people who go on vacation and brag about the fact that they choose somewhere where they couldn't get email, but. I know a lot of people who don't like that. They want to ha- they want to be on they want to be connected all the time. Do you think that's good for you really? I don't think it's good for everyone. I don't think uh, I I don't think people should um feel plugged in or an obligation to feel plugged in 24/7. I've had house guests their friends were here for a weekend Saturday morning. I come downstairs and there they are at my kitchen table, both of them, you know, in tandem with their laptops yep. open. Sure. And and these were house guests. We thought we would be having fun. So <laughs> what are you doing? They looked at me, surly looks and said, We're working. Yeah. Um so, expressing uh, ourselves. Yes. We're being so, creative. It's good. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and in fact they were in creative industries. So um look, I, I I don't think everyone should be a quote, you know, type A raging personality. On the other hand, I don't think People should be made to feel guilty uh, for the fact that they're trying to get ahead, trying to make a better lives for for their kids and 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 for themselves. Um, but uh, we also have to recognize that sometimes those Type A's uh, do a lot of good for the world. Yeah, you know, in 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 Russia, I tell the story of my father had had 
um, uh, a heart attack while on vacation in Phoenix. While on vacation in Phoenix, maybe if he'd stayed at his desk, he would have been fine. But he went on vacation in Phoenix. He had a heart attack. Vacation uh, can be very stressful. Yeah, you know, well, you got to feel like you got to get all the sights in. You got to get the golf, and then the, the museum, and then the right kind of dinner. And some people do let, get let stressed me tell you, out. I spent my morning trying to get hotel reservations for Florence, Italy, <laughs> and it took a lot of effort. My heart goes I, out to you, Todd. Yeah. So, so, so anyway, uh, so my father is going to have to have heart surgery. So my mother was there. I and my brother flew to Phoenix, and there were two doctors to choose between, uh, two surgeons. And one of them was a really nice guy. I'd love to go to dinner with him. He was, you know, conversational and laid back. And the other one looked and acted like he was, you know, Tom Cruise and Top Gun. King of the uh, he might as well have been wearing a bomber jacket. But it turned out this is the guy who does more more uh, bypasses, you know, and apparently more effectively. And he wasn't a guy I wanted to go out and have a beer with, but this was a real professional, a Top Gun. And you know, when it's your father who's tethered to the IV tubes, who do you want? The one who'd be a good conversationalist you want to go on vacation with, or the guy who really in, is intensely focused uh, on his work? And so, you know, we chose the Top Gun happily. My father survived the procedure. Um, you know, I, I think we've got people who are probably too intense, by my judgment or your judgment, uh, but often they're, they're, they're intense in a way that ultimately uh, creates benefits and, um, you know, positive externalities, as we'd say. Yeah, no, for sure. I think the question is... Um, I think Steve Jobs is probably a pretty intense guy. Yeah, I you know, I mean, he wears so. his black turtleneck or his black shirts and, and so on, but uh, he seems pretty intense to me, and I, I have to tell you, I'm absolutely delighted with all with the iPads and iPhones that I've bought in the last few years. Yeah, and I think he's a good example. He's um, He seems to be a pretty demanding fellow and, and has strong tastes, right? Which um, he's not an easy-come, easy-go guy probably to, to work with, and... Most of us are the beneficiaries of that process, yeah. and even if you don't like Apple, you're the beneficiary because it's encouraged competition, tried to make other, made it forced other competitors to to meet their standards. Well, you know, and it's, it's funny. I, I've got three daughters, and I, I I said something to one of my daughters the other day. I said, you know, if you're a guest at somebody's house, or if you're with other people, friends, going out to dinner, and so on. And they ask you, hey, you know, Todd, uh, what are you in the mood for? What sort of food are you in the mood for? If I say, oh, I don't care, whatever you want, I, I sort of think, oh, I'm being really helpful and, and, and I'm not being an obstacle to what they wanted. And I've decided, you know what, people actually like to hear some opinion in some direction. There's nothing worse than, you know, a few couples wandering down the lane because they can't decide what they want or, you know, what they, what they want or no one seems to have any preferences. Sometimes preferences are a good thing. No, for sure. Um, and, and we need them. And so, you know, Steve Jobs is the guy who had a preference for no buttons on computers and screens, and it turns out that's revolutionized how people are doing business and leading their electronic lives these days. No, for sure. You spend um, a reasonable amount of time in the book, um, reasonable meaning fairly fairly uh, long amount of time, better way to say it, talking about uh, the evolutionary uh, past that we've inherited and how that imposes constraints on what makes us happy uh, and, and what we uh, get pleasure from. Talk about what the implications are for, say, competition and stress and, and happiness. Yes, well, we are not sloths. <laughs> most, most of us, at least, are not sloths. 
we wouldn't be happy just you know clinging to clinging to a branch. Uh, you know, I, I, as Mary Poppins said to one of her wards, "We are not codfish. Close your mouth." You know, we are human beings, and we've evolved in certain ways. And two of the important ways, from a biological point of view. Uh, and a neuroscience point of view. Number one, we have this large frontal cortex that literally sits in the, in the front of our brains. Um, and uh, it is our window to the future. You know, it is the part of the brain that allows us to imagine the future, to think forward. Um, you know, it's, it's like our windshield as we go forward. Um, and it rewards us for planning, which is very different from the planning that, oh, I don't know, you know, a beaver does to build a dam. That's more instinctual and so on. But, you know, we can imagine should it be a dam made out of sticks or woods or, or, or metals or, you know, any other, you know, we, we can do this sort of planning. Number two, um, we've got these neurotransmitters, and, you know, most people have heard of dopamine, for instance. And, and dopamine is that neurotransmitter that gives us a, a rush, if you will, that gives us a surge of good feelings when we take a risk, when we try something new. And so my argument in Rush is that our brains have evolved in such a way that we are more likely to get good feelings when we move forward as opposed to just staying in place. That's the frontal cortex. And it's the dopamine, because dopamine is not the, the juice, the good feeling you get uh, from winning the race. It is the good feeling you get from being involved in something, from being engaged. Once you win the race, you know, it, 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 it's over. But the real question or the, the real challenge in life, I find, and my research shows me, uh, is that it's when people feel engaged and, and, and feel as if the future is in front of them and they're moving forward, and that's when they're most likely to get those slivers of happiness. Now, in Rush, I don't promise by reading, you know, the 300 pages, you're suddenly going to feel ecstatic about yourself, but I don't think there's any book that can make you feel that way. I think we should feel lucky. You know, we're, we're privileged that we can grab slivers of happiness now and then. Um, but I don't believe in any yoga master who tells you that, you know, if you meditate, you're going to feel good every day or most of the day. Um, you know, the, the good feelings we get are when we're acting, not when we're just sitting on our fannies. Yeah, I, I I think there's no doubt about that. I think it's um, it, there's a certain paradox there, of course, that that we all live through, especially the, when we do creative work. There is no doubt that the exhilaration of the process is just spectacular. Uh, when you're writing the book, when you're imagining how it'll come out, it's more exciting than the actual often. Than the actual book, not because the book's mediocre or disappointing, just that it's done, and we feel that. I think, as t as a teacher, uh, I always find the end of the semester, uh, the end of the year, a very a very bittersweet time. There's an incredible sadness when when college when college ends, whether it's the year or the or the degree or, or the, the the time of students here, and um, it's the same phenomenon, right? That when it's the promise. The expectation. Uh, there's an incredible, poignant, and exhilarating feeling that comes from the uncertainty and that risk taking you're talking about. So we have to we have a certain schizophrenia, right? We we know that the payoff is often it's not disappointing, but when it's over, it's going to be kind of a little bit of a downer. Yeah, yeah. And yet, and, and yet we we keep striving. Yes, yes. Uh, in 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 Rush, I quote of all people, Frankie Valley. Uh, because I, I was lucky enough to be an angel investor, and I'm listed as one of the co-producers of of Jersey Boys, you know, the Broadway 
Tony Award winning smash hit. Anyway, in that in that show Congrats. at the end. Uh, Frankie Valli has, has been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he's sold millions of records and, you know, household name and all of that. Um, and after conquering, you know, the, the music world, Frankie Valli reminisces about success. He says, quote, they ask you, what was the high point? The Hall of Fame, selling all those records, pulling the song Sherry out of the hat? It was all great. But four guys under a street lamp when it was all still ahead of us, unquote. That was the sweetest moment. You know, to, to imagine the future is an evolutionary gift. Uh, and, you know, we're the beneficiaries of that gift. And, and yeah, I, I agree. You know, the actual, you know, finishing of the task or the accomplishment, all right, you take the bow, you, you know, you walk off stage. Uh, but that's not as thrilling as when you're walking on stage. Yeah, or as you say, when it's just a, a glimmer uh, in that in that Frankie Valley story, and that's a beautiful story, right? It, he may have been, who knows if he was telling the truth, but I think we all, anytime you've done anything, whether it's uh, redo, remodel your house, change your wardrobe, doesn't matter what it is, the the imagining of it is is a huge part of the pleasure you get. Yeah, well, I I read, I don't know whether you did, one of the best sports autobiographies I've ever read was Andre Agassi's book, Open. Open. Great book. Great book. In which he confesses at one point, he says, I hate tennis, and one reason he hates it is that, you know, it's a lonely game, and his father beat him into it. Um, And as I read that book, and I think I'd read it right before Tiger Woods had his, you know, marital escapades, I thought, wow, Tiger Woods, he probably hates golf. Now, there he is. He's always, at this point, you know, he's almost always winning. Kind of a lonely sport. All these people following along. But what does he have, at this point, what's in it for him? To fly all around the world and then have to play golf once again before all these people? I can't imagine that's nearly as fun or interesting or stimulating for him as it was, you know, five or ten years ago when all that greatness was still in front of him. Yeah, watch his face when he won his uh, when he's en route to winning his first Masters, and watch it watch it uh, later on in his career. I, th- I think what sustained him actually, uh, as long as as he was successful, was the expectation, unrealized expectation, that he would pass Jack Nicklaus um, in in success in majors or some other measure, and that kept him going. I think, as you say, he was getting. Um, you could imagine it wasn't quite as interesting. Um, it does raise the interesting question whether he he's happier now. I, I doubt it, but he's yeah. got other things going on at the same yes, time. Yes. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, he's got uh, a more I, interesting I, golf life. That's for sure. Yes, exactly. Yes, I mean now that his wife has taken up the game yeah, yeah. <laughs> by slapping him across the head yeah. um, or across his window. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. It occurs to me as someone who sees a lot of a lot of theater, and I've actually written a play, it's not been produced yet, maybe it will someday, one of the most common complaints about a theatrical piece is, quote, it fell apart or it didn't have a second act. Yep. People, when they're disappointed in a play, it's usually not because the first act wasn't good, because the first act is the build-up, yep. right? It's the second of how things are resolved, uh, it kind of became boring at that point. Yeah, and I well, think that sort of reflects the fact that we like, you know, look, uh, nothing, nothing gets people to lean forward in their seats more than if someone says, hey, let me tell you a story, mm-hmm. right? Just that phrase, let me tell you a story, that's the promise of something in front of you. 
uh, you know, how the story ends, okay, maybe it'll end with a big belly laugh, but, it, you know, what gets us going is, let me tell you, come with me. That's much more exciting than here it is. Well, that's a great example, and I think, digressing for a moment onto Broadway, um, most second acts aren't as good as the first act, and and it's, it's obviously a challenge. I, I never thought about the challenge being the realizing of the expectations or the end of the uncertainty about the how the future would unfold. One of my favorite shows is Wicked. Mm-hmm. And the first act of Wicked ends with the best, I think the best song in the show, which is Define Gravity and the best moment in the show. And um, I remember when it, when the first act ended, the first time I saw it, I said to my wife, let's go home. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Um, and now the second act's actually pretty good, but it's not as good as the first act. And I mean, it's a great show. You don't, I don't leave, I didn't leave disappointed or anything. But you're right that that the expectation of what comes next um, is really much easier than resolving it in a way that's satisfying. And it is – I never thought about it as having an evolutionary component that that our, our brains – we like the future. We really do. It's, well, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, Daniel Gilbert, who's a, the Harvard psychologist, with whom I disagree from time to time yeah, uh, in my book, do, do, does point out something that's interesting observation. And – I suppose it is true that people tend not to watch DVR'd or videotaped sporting events, even if they don't know the outcome. In other words, if they say, hey, I'm a big Bears fan, the Bears are playing, you know, the Lions, uh, I'm, I'm not going to read the paper or listen to the radio, but I'm going to watch it. Um, he said they tend not to because somehow they have this feeling that it's already taken place. Their rooting for their team isn't going to have any impact through God or some other, you know, brainwave. Mystical, yeah. Yeah, and so um, they end up not doing that. Now, I don't know whether that's, you know, empirically true, uh, but it's an interesting observation. I think it does sort of reflect the fact that, you know, we like to march forward, not just, uh, you know, play nostalgia. Well, I'm going to disagree with that. Uh, he's not here to defend himself. But I, I think uh, I've watched a lot of sporting events taped uh, because I couldn't watch them live. And I think the reason that's it's probably dying out now simply because it's almost impossible to keep yourself in, uh, what, you know, what I, we used to call radio silence, where people wouldn't tell you who won or you don't get a tweet, you know, or an instant message about it. But I do think what's interesting uh, th- that th- both contra- – I think contradicts that point and, and reinforces your earlier point is that I'll watch Wicked. I've seen it I think three times or I think two or three times. My wife's seen it three times. I've really got to get you to see Jersey Boys. I've not nine. seen it. Uh, I'm open to it. I can't. T- I take no gifts, Todd. But uh, I would like to see it. But but Wicked is a great show, and I enjoyed it as much the second time, even though I knew what was going to happen. And yeah. we do have a <clears throat> right. That that's the ultimate taped sporting event. You, you know, uh, I saw Cyrano de Bergerac last night, actually. Mm-hmm. And I know how it ends. Uh, (laughs) I've seen it, and it doesn't make it any – I still love it. It's still powerful and – well, I, you know what? I I actually – I do agree with you. I mean I quote Gilbert in the the book, but look, the whole uh, concept of the ESPN's classic sports channel. I'll watch a boxing match, you know, an old Muhammad Ali boxing match. 
uh, again. I mean, I was in a Stra- at the Stratford Festival just uh, attending a couple weeks ago with my kids in Canada, and we saw Richard III, and you know what? He doesn't make it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. hey, don't spoil it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Spoiler warning. Yes. <laughs> it's a bad outcome for Richard III. He doesn't get a horse. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> missing a horse. Yeah. Yes, maybe if he had an iPad, he wouldn't have needed a horse. Yeah. But I do the part that I think is fascinating that that, that I'd never thought of is this um, when we watch a show the second time or we rewatch a a classic sporting event, we suspend our disbelief, even though we know how it's going to come out. We put ourselves back in that moment, and I think we savor that kind of possibility that when when, when things are possible, and we love that. It's very much part of what makes us human. Yeah. Well, uh, in, in the book, I, I also talk about. Um uh, performing artists, uh, performing live, uh, you know, uh, and I talk about Frank Sinatra confessing he still got butterflies on stage, you know, even later in his career, because it's the excitement, and he, and he felt that, you know, it made him sing better. Yeah, Bill you know, Russell. He, when I was a kid, and maybe you remember, there were those old ads for Memorex tapes with Ella yep. Fitzgerald, yep. right? Is it yep. live or is sure. it Memorex? Cracking the glass. Yes, and there's you know there's something thrilling about um, about that because there's the stress, and that gets back to the issue of stress in society, uh, and my argument that actually you know st- we need stress, otherwise we become too complacent and bored and discontent. Yeah, Bill Russell, who has I think eleven championship rings as a Boston Celtic, uh, he threw up before every game out of anxiety. <laughs> supposedly, he's one, you know clearly. A top ten player, maybe top five player all time, sure. and um, he, it wasn't easy for him. And as you say, I think he probably he used that deliberately to make himself a better player. I don't, I don't think he ever wanted to be complacent or or content about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I guess thing. it's better to throw up before the game than to uh, get <laughs> beaten by Bill Russell and be sick for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, or during. Um, now, go, let's talk about the rat race. Um, you do in the, at, at the end of the book uh, have some um, – I'm not sure I'd call them caveats, but obviously some people consumed by um, competition, type A or whatever you want to call it, uh, lose connections to their friends and family. And I think so many of the critics of, of our modern – our I love when people say our modern lifestyle as if there were one. But, <laughs> but let's talk about the people who, who do work very hard. Obviously, it comes at a price sometimes that they that they regret. Um, so you're not suggesting that you should neglect friends and family and merely uh, pursue the future, right? No, no. I look. I think you know a balanced life makes sense. But but I also find that the great bonding experience in our lives, in our personal lives, not our work lives, tend to be those involved with action. You know, now look, we just spoke about theater and it's fun to take your kids and go to the theater. Uh, but it's more fun for them if you are doing something other than passively sitting there. Uh, and those are the sorts of things that make relationships. Those are the sort of things that create experiences that make us happy. You know, I took my kid. I, I'm not an ardent whitewater rafter by any means, but we were on vacation and I took, you know, took my daughter's rafting and it was, I wouldn't say it was the experience of, of a lifetime, but, 
but it was a much greater experience than if we watched a really good movie about whitewater rafting. Sure. So, so my, my argument is that, no, you shouldn't be working 24-7 and ignoring your family, but the time you spend with your family shouldn't be you know, simply defined as downtime. You know, it should, be, it should be defined in a way that you're creating experiences, and it's tough to create experiences if you're just kind of sitting on a chair reading the newspaper while your kids are, you know, on the other side of the room, you know, lounging in their own sphere. You know, that's, yeah, that's always an interesting challenge on vacation. Uh, everybody has different philosophies of what they do, right? Some people just want to sit on the beach, and they're happy reading next to their spouse and their kids and, and let the kids splash in the water a little bit, and other people want to be out. Doing that, st- that stuff, whitewater rafting and parasailing and doing yeah. everything. And, and 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 look again, I'm not a high. I've got hyperactive friends who can't, you know, who can't stop, you know, jumping around in the water. And sometimes I look at them and say, well, God, I wish I had the energy, you know, yeah. to play with the kids as, as you know, as vigorously as Eric does because he, you know, guy won't sleep. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not prescribing this as someone says, hey, do what I, you know, do what I do. I'm not perfect in that respect. Uh, but, you know, again, it's, it's about building experiences because those are the sorts of things that we remember and those are the sorts of things that bring us good feelings. Let's talk about uh, the people on the other side of the political spectrum or people who would, who would want to restrain some of these um, choices that, that we make. And as, as we both agree, some people choose to be more active than others. Some people choose to be more competitive than others. Some people choose to be more materialistic. And I love that everybody has a the freedom in, in our country, at least mostly, to choose those those options. Why do you think, though, that there are so many people who who are selling intellectually a, a different flavor, um, who want to restrain our choices, who argue that these natural, whether they're natural or not, and you argue in the book that these are natural impulses that we have to take into account if we want to be happy and 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 lead satisfied lives, and I agree with you. But why is it then that it's so easy for them to sell that Eden, that return to Eden philosophy, the Walden Pond, you know, as if Thoreau sat around all day on his rear end at Walden. He is, you know, as I think you point out, he was pretty active. Um, He was an active guy. He didn't sit around and and look off in the distance for most of his life. Why is that viewpoint uh, so nostalgic? Why why is that nostalgic view so attractive to so many people? Well, yeah, and by the way, the, the sellers of that idea, they work awfully hard at it, don't they? I mean, Deepak uh, yes. Chopra and all the others, they've got their institutes, they've got their, <laughs> their you know, expensive spas, they've got yeah. their PBS specials, they're yeah. working, they're marketing it uh, all the time. Uh, I, th- I think that there is this uh, natural, you know, primitive yearning, as we said at the beginning, a yearning for paradise that calls upon people. And, and look, uh, I, I quoted earlier that most people are satisfied or very satisfied with their jobs. At the same time, many people feel underappreciated, and this is especially true of the intelligentsia. You know, the professor, the English professor in his office is looking around saying, my dumb C-plus student, you know, just became CEO of, yeah. uh, of Lehman Brothers yeah. or president of the United States. Yeah. And so, you know, why should we have this system that doesn't reward, that neither rewards people based on moral merit, nor does it seem to reward them on intelligence? Because if it did, I, the tenured English professor, would be paid far more than any of my students. 
So, you know, and this, is, this has been the attraction of a socialist apparatus, you know, for at least a, a hundred years, and that's why its support tends to come from the, intelli- from the underappreciated intelligentsia uh, rather than, you know, from the middle classes or the, you know, or, or the rabble. Um, of course, it's, yeah. it's a strange thing, though, because many economists hold this Eden – Edenistic view, um, have a nostalgia for the past, and they're not – they're making a lot more than that English professor. They're they're paid very, very well these days, right? A PhD in economics is a, is a pretty lucrative, lucrative uh, gig, and it's interesting to me that they still are selling um, a return to uh, simplicity. Well, uh, I, 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 suppose that, I suppose that's right. I'm not sure um – See, see here's, here's what I think the disconnect is. Where there's a logical fallacy and a leap that is a treacherous leap, like, you know, evil Knievel trying to go over whatever that canyon was. Um, it's one thing to look at your friend. Let's just call your friend Bob. You look at your friend Bob and say, you know, Bob is under a lot of stress. You know, Bob, you know, he didn't get the promotion he was looking for. He's got a big mortgage. He may have trouble making the payments, so on and so forth. You know, he really needs some time out to, to turn down the dial on stress. And we know people like that. Yep. And for Bob, that really would probably be a good prescription. We've got to figure out how to get Bob out of this terribly stressful situation. But the, the logical or illogical leap that's then made is people will say, therefore, our society needs to just take a Ambien or a Xanax, and we need to unplug capitalism and unplug free enterprise because that's what's creating Bob's situation. So what might be a good prescription for Bob the individual, I think would be a hazardous prescription on a macro basis, and that's what I find so many of these practitioners doing. Uh, saying if we could just you know, unplug competition, we'd all be better off. And what they fail to realize is every society had competition. You, you don't think the Soviet Union had competition? Uh, China, uh, in Maoist China, had competition, but it wasn't competition to see who could patent uh, the next prostate cancer drug. It was competition to see who could get the party boss to get them a cold shower once a week. Yeah. So they were vying for what scraps were on the table as opposed to trying to you know, build a new kind of world. So the competition is there and the stress is there. The question is whether you want to channel it in a way that leads to longer lifespans and a better standard of living or you want to channel it so that everyone is engaged in you know, a zero-sum game of grabbing the remaining scraps on the table. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I, I, I do think um, some of that those differences come down to Thomas Sowell's um, great thesis, the conflict divisions. Some people see, you know, Sowell says there's there are people who take what we would call a Smithian realistic view or a more utopian view of human nature. And what you're saying is, which I I think is true, is that this is the way we are. Um, so suggest we should try to stop that is. It's just simply unrealistic. Well, yes, I, uh, there. Look, as I, and I'm sure you found the same as you've, you know, traveled in your career, uh, and I've been lucky enough at various times to be associated with, you know, the White House and Harvard and all sorts of August institutions. And I always thought, you know, I'm going to find Mozart at one of these places. I'm going to find, and it turns out, in my career, I've never found a Mozart. You know, the Mozart of economics or the Mozart of politics or the Mozart of, you know, writing theatrical works. I mean, what I find is you know, we got a lot of Stalieri's out there, 
you know, trying to pluck out a reasonable tune, and that's probably, you know, good enough. And the concept that there's Eden or there's Mozart or there's this, you know, this saintly person, if we could just follow in his footsteps, he's not competitive at all. You know, the, the more honest biographies you read of great men, and most recently, uh, new biography of uh, Mahatma Gandhi, you know, you find out that, what do you know, humans are humans. And so we've got to take people as they are, not as we would like to recreate them. Talk about trust. Uh, what's your view on, you talk about the role of how trust and competition interact. What role does that play in our economy? Well, yes, I, 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 trust plays, uh, of course, a, a huge role. And my argument is that what, well, a few things. Number one, societies, as they become more um, private enterprise focused, more commercial, more, free, more the more trade, the more trust there is. And there are some studies that have recently been done that are noted in, in Rush that, that show that, that basically, you know, if you go back to, um, or if you go down to South America, you go to more primitive tribes in, um, you know, South, in Southeast Asia and elsewhere, if you can still find aboriginal tribes, uh, and people assume, oh, well, the, you know, Margaret Mead types and their progeny will tell us, well, they're more honest and so on. Well, it turns out their murder rates are higher. You know, their theft rates are higher and so on. The more, quote, advanced civilizations or countries tend to have lower crime rates. And crime rates have fallen dramatically in Europe over the last 500, 1,000 years. So, first of all, you know, the trust and the honesty seems to uh, be developed and enhanced by commercial transactions. And secondly, it is not the first transaction, it's the repeat transaction. In other words, you know, you can be ripped off easily by some fly-by-night salesman. I mean, that's the whole point. A fly-by-night salesman, obviously a pejorative term, it means he's only going to be there for one transaction, then he's gone. Well, he's got no reason uh, to engender trust with you except to fool you for that one transaction. But if he's got a storefront... And as 90% of businesses need to make money on repeat customers, not stealing or, or you know, or ripping off one customer and then moving on to the next, you know, he, he's got to be honest in his transactions. So, you know, so what you need is a society where people trade and a society where they have an expectation that the strangers they trade with will be a more permanent part, you know, of their environment. And that's, you know, and by the way, uh, uh, I guess uh, 15 years ago, um, you might have objected and said, hey, but what about all these Internet transactions? That's not my storefront. That guy's not down the street from me. But now we've had the advent of what TripAdvisor and the Amazon star system and yep. eBay star system. So now, now we've got, you know, ingenious systems so that people who are, who are strangers somewhere out in cyberspace actually become much closer than, than strangers. And in some cases, maybe you may feel closer to them than you do to the guy who's got the storefront a couple blocks from your house. Or even a family member, if it's the wrong kind of family member. Yeah. Well, I, yes, yeah, we all have, you know, we all have some family member that we'd rather not trust, uh, trust much money with. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I use the example of uh, if I have to get, um, get to the airport at a certain time, do I want to call my brother or do I want to call a stranger who's going to, I'm going to pay? And in my case, my brother's remarkably reliable and I'd be totally happy with my brother, but I'm well, sure... listen, I'm flying into Dallas next week. Give me your brother's number. If there you go. <laughs> well, but that's, of course, part of the point is that I only have you know one brother who uh, who I can count on and my sister's pretty reliable too, but I'm sure many people out there have siblings that 
eh, I'd probably rather better off calling the calling the cab uh, or, <laughs> or, or the or the, the shop. Well, uh, yeah, that, that's right. And, and, and again, another um, argument or, or part of uh, of the book, uh, I I argue that. You know, charity obviously is a good thing, and I, I encourage my kids and, and my wife and I try to be as charitable as, as we know how. But can you build a society entirely on on charity? I don't think so. And I, and I point out, and this really reflects, you know, Hayek's you know great essay on on information. Um, you know, if I if we're out together and you say, hey, I, you know, Todd, I like your tie. I say, here, take my tie. You can have it. Oh, and you say, well, can I pay? No, 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 it's Terry, you know, and, and maybe you'll give me your tie instead and we've swapped. But that doesn't, then, then we've got some questions to ask. Well, what materials went into that tie? How much silk? How much polyester? You know, how, how many resources were used to make it? If we don't somehow have a, an ability to put a price on something, we end up wasting nat- precious natu- natural resources instead of, you know, handling them in a way to preserve them or put some value on them. So ultimately, even a society based on just everybody sharing ends up being a very wasteful society with some very big open questions to be answered. No, you have to know what to produce. And I, that article is, of course, the use of knowledge in society, which – we probably mention about every every two or three months. It's being one of my favorite articles. So we'll put a link up to it one more time, folks out there. If you haven't read it yet, this is a good time to read it. It's a great article. It's where Hayek calls the price system a marvel. And uh, I think he, he was onto something there. And obviously, and, 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 for, and for someone to, to write so brilliantly and so clearly in what was not even his first language is, is just a, a staggering thought. Well, uh, I think that was the exception maybe rather than the rule. He's not always the uh, the most light and uh, intrepid uh, stylist, but in that article, he's pretty clear. I will, I will agree with you. It, it, it's an amazing thing, actually. His essays are really well-written. I think they're much easier to read uh, than his books. I don't know why, but um, maybe some Hayekian out there can tell us. <laughs> well, you know, I had a conversation with a friend the other day who said a similar thing about Keynes, whom I, I always thought Keynes is a very clear writer. I mean, you might obviously disagree with many, many of his views and arguments, uh, but I always thought he was a skillful writer. But my friend insisted, no, it's only his essays that are, that are well, well true. written. His essays are very well written. His books, uh, you know, the general theory is is very painful to try to read, um, especially today. I don't know if it was easier then. Well, I don't, Given the uh, the bogus fiscal stimulus plan we had out of Washington two years ago, I wouldn't recommend reading the general theory again at this moment. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's always timely. Uh, it's always going to be uh, something that people want to want to use to to justify spending. Uh, actually, you know, we're almost out of time. I'm going to uh, let's come to a an essay of Keynes that's that's relevant for your uh, thesis. And some of your discussion uh, reminded me of it. He has a, a famous essay where he talks about the economic future. And his theme in that essay is that a time – this was written I think in the in the late, late 20s or mid-30s. And he says there's going to be a time in the future when we're going to have an extraordinary standard of living. And we're going to have – our biggest challenge is going to be leisure. Um, what are we going to do with all the extra time? And you know he was half right. He was right that an extraordinary standard of living was coming. He was wrong that our problem was going to be leisure because we still manage to work hard. We don't sit around and say, oh, I've got plenty. 
But Keynes very much pushed in that essay, and I think probably affected his, his theorizing elsewhere. He was very anti-saving. He did not like looking to the future. He viewed it as in many ways, and if you read the essay, and again, I will try to put a link up to it, uh, he viewed it as a moral failing to look to the future. Um, and your book reminds us that we are future-oriented whether we like it or not. Um, Keynes didn't like it perhaps, but um, it's perhaps the way we are. Well, and, and it's interesting because you know, his, his teacher, Alfred Marshall, uh, at, at Cambridge was someone who embraced savings and, you know, and then deemed it, uh, deemed uh, interest rates and so on as the reward for patients, you know, uh, and not medical patients, but yeah. being patient about things. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I'm reminded, you know, Schumpeter in, in his essay uh, also suggested that, or his book uh, on capitalism and socialism suggested yeah. that you know, ultimately, socialism wins. Why? Because the sons and daughters of affluent people have too much time on their hands and decide, uh, you know, in all of their luxury to plot the end of, of competition. And I think that's, you know, I think Schumpeter kind of points to uh, those moralists and economists today who who had the luxury cause, because, you know, look, let me, let me put it more simply. 200 years ago, when people were struggling just to get enough food, not to starve to death, they didn't have time to sit around wondering, gosh, are we under too much stress? So the stress that we feel is something, is a luxury. The, the idea of talking about stress today is a luxury, uh, a, a result of the fact that we've created this high standard of living. Uh, but again, you know, is now the time to say game over? You know, let's just lock and let's just put everything in a lockbox. For all we know, you know, one year from now, uh, there'll be a cure for lung cancer. And maybe if we unplug the pharmaceutical industry today, that won't come about and thousands will die. And I'd it, rather take the chance and keep going than pronounce that this is the final moment that we should embrace and just keep us in the status quo. I think the people who, who are on the other side who want a more controlled life uh, from top down or who want a less dynamic, more egalitarian world, you know, their argument I think is that you know, we've picked all the low-hanging fruit. The improvements in health that are coming are relatively small, and I'd say, boy, the jury's not out on that one yet. Um, who knows? Well, uh, I, don't believe the, I don't believe the jury is out. It's, it's really amazing just in the last 20 years. Uh, the changes in life expectancy as a result of cardiac medicine and cardiac procedures. You know, it's not a couple of weeks. You know, it's years uh, of gains and then just you get having your, taken place, you know, during recent decades. And then you get your artificial knees and you can keep playing tennis. And <laughs> Right? It's not you're, you're sitting around in, a, in, a, in an armchair uh, drooling. You, the quality of life is better too. It's really – it's so much more than just life expectancy being longer, life being – People living longer. Well, exactly. And, and frankly, I'm impressed at the number of senior citizens, I include my mother among this, so engaged in the Internet. You know, of course, half of her engagement is sending urban myths to me. Yeah, <laughs> but, with alarm, uh, with alarm, no doubt. Yes, saying, yes. Careful. Uh, yes, don't put that <laughs> yeah. mug of water in yeah. the microwave it's or not. the entire <laughs> world will explode. Um, so, you know, so some of the things, some of the technological and other benefits we're seeing are not merely redounding to, you know, Silicon Valley nerds and 20-somethings, you know, yeah. they're redounding to the benefit and the lives of, you know, people across, obviously across many spectra across the world and across almost all age groups. 
My guest today has been Todd Buckholz. Todd, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.